Good day, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Intersection, where we get together and talk about uh, topics of the day as it relates to the intersection of technology and national security. We're joined today by Eli Dorado, who is an economist, regulatory hacker, and senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Prior to joining the CGO, Eli was the first policy hire at a supersonic aviation startup. Uh, before that, he was a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and director of its technology policy program. Eli, thanks for joining us at the intersection today. Well, thanks for having me, Steve. This is going to be fun. So uh, first off, maybe Eli, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you end up as an economist and regulatory hacker? I, I love that expression, regulatory hacker. So t tell us uh, uh, how, how you end up where you are. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, when I was uh, in my 20s, I had this misguided idea that I wanted to be an economics professor. And so I went down that road um, and, uh, you know, uh, got, you know, got my PhD, you know, got started on my PhD uh, in economics at, at, at George Mason University, which was a great place to do it. Um, and uh, but somewhere along the along the path was like, I, you know, sort of realized like, oh, no, this is not actually what I want to do with my life is, you know, like sort of like writing writing um, papers that uh, you know only push the the sort of the state of the art so far, which is kind of what's um, what's what's valued in academia, and um, and and so you know sort of uh, as basically a way of uh, you know procrastinating on my dissertation and and so on like that. And really just started writing online about technology and economics and and the related policy issues. And, uh, you know, while, uh, while I was doing that, just sort of blogging, uh, sort of in my spare time, sort of caught the attention of, uh, of, of some people at the, at the Mercatus Center and got brought on board as a, as a, you know, research fellow there to work on the t technology policy program and, uh, liked it so much. I decided, you know, this is, this is for me, this is, uh, the right direction I want to go in, in my career. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later when the head of the department left, uh, you know, they, they made me the head and, and sort of, I, that gave me options, you know, an opportunity to, to shape that program and, and, to, and to change you know, a little bit the direction of that program. And I really decided to focus and, and double down on, um, like growth in the issues, uh, related to the world of, of atoms rather than the world of bits. So really started to think a lot about, um, you know, you know, we have this, when people think about tech in Washington, they think of, you know, Facebook, um, not, you know, uh, supersonic aircraft. Right. And so, uh, so I decided to, you know, to sort of in, invert that and say, well, like, I want to focus my research on how do we enable technology in the physical world? And, um, and so, uh, you know, I did that for a while, uh, including on supersonic flight. I wrote a, you know, wrote a paper in, in 2016 on, on the barriers to bringing back, uh, supersonics over land, uh, eventually got hired on at, um, at boom supersonic as the, as the first policy hire and, and, and head of comms, um, and, and spent a, a few years there, uh, you know, sort of like leading, leading engagement with, with Congress, the white house, FAA, uh, ICAO, European regulators and so on. Um, so did that for a while. And, um, and then a few years later, time seemed right to, to kind of go back into the nonprofit world and, and, uh, do what I was doing before. So landed at, uh, the center for growth and opportunity, which is, uh, it's been fabulous. And, uh, you know, I, I basically, you know, work very, uh, in a very focused way on 
finding out, you know, what, what technologies could, you know, be transformative in, in terms of their, um, their impact on, on quality of life and on, on, uh, economic growth and, and figuring out how to, how to unblock them from a policy level. So that's, that's what I, that's like what my day to day is, uh, these days. That's great, Eli. So, uh, you first caught my attention, uh, uh, at the beginning of this year and the last year when you posted a blog post called notes on technology in the 2020s, in which you looked at, uh, uh where you think the, uh, uh, technology, key technology trends are going over the next 10 years. And it was retweeted, you know, seven times in my Twitter feed uh, by people like Mark Andreessen and others. So, you know, clearly you, you, you hit a, 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 a key message that was important to everybody. Uh, um, uh, tell me what prompted you to uh, 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 make that blog post and were you surprised at the reaction that, that you got in the Twitter sphere from it? Um, yeah, so I, I wrote that because uh, I'd been sort of trying to make the case uh, to a bunch of people uh, on Twitter and elsewhere um, that you know we could be going a lot faster than than we than we have been in terms of, in terms of technological progress. And uh, you know I'd been sort of making that case um, in a in a sort of like a piecemeal fashion on Twitter and, and and you know just discussing it with people. And and one of my friends um, Adam Ozmek was like, "Hey, you've you've got to you got to write this up as as like a post." And so so it was, it was actually he goaded me into it. And and so I was I was like astounded by the the response. I mean, it was it was. Um, you know, a, a, a went super. That was the most viral I think I've I've ever had anything uh, go. So, um, so yeah, it was it was uh, it was very interesting and unusual for it to to go uh, that viral. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think you know my my view in that in that piece is like there's a lot of opportunity for the U.S. economy to to grow a lot faster, and uh, we just need to to seize it. Yeah. And, and for those that haven't uh, read the post yet, uh, uh, it's available on, on your website. Uh, why don't you give a quick uh, 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 shout out for, for where they can find it? Uh, yeah, so that post is on my personal website, elidorado.com. Great. And, 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 and summarize uh, quickly, what are some of the key areas of technology innovation that you think we as a, a government entity should be supporting to drive economic growth? Well, I think that... Like the, the probably the number one thing that's that's moving uh, really fast is biotech. I mean, we saw it with the mRNA vaccines, uh, with our response to the the pandemic. Uh, when when we want to go fast in biotech, we can. Uh, the science itself, the fundamental science, is proceeding really really rapidly, and it's what's been lagging is the commercialization. So um, so biotech is probably the number one uh, area. Um, the you know in addition i think it's things like uh like energy technology and and transportation and um you know more broadly like stuff in the physical world um that that um that's important yeah and uh uh one of the points that i think you make is that it's your fondest wish to see gdp per capita reach uh $200,000 by 2050 you know, explain to the audience uh, why that's important, you know, and, and why that's the right metric to, to focus on. Well, so there's a bunch of metrics all related to, to GDP per capita that you could care about or you might think about. Like GDP is just like the output of the whole economy. Um, you know, more, higher GDP per capita yeah. would mean that we're wealthier. You know, uh, you know, each of us is wealthier uh, than we are today, which would be great. Um, you know, I think you can you could, uh, you know, 
you could think about GDP per capita as just a metric of quality of life. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's valuable on its own terms. I think also like, you know, from a national security perspective, you know, more total GDP is correlated with winning wars. So, uh, so that's important for national security, like just being, being, a, having a, a big wealthy economy is important for winning wars. Uh, you might, you know, there's some caveats about whether that's total wars versus proxy wars and whether it's total GDP or manufacturing ability, but, uh, but more, more output is, is better from, from a, a national security perspective. Um, when GDP, I think another uh, underrated, uh, perspective on this is that when GDP per capita is is growing, it, not, not even when it's high, but when it's growing, politics becomes more stable. So uh, you know we've seen sort of stagnation over the last twenty years, and you've had you know politics in the U.S. has been crazy. So um, so more stability uh, that that you can get. You know if, if everybody's life is getting better year after year, I think is also really valuable. And I think there's an another. Um, related metric that i focus on a lot uh which is uh called total factor productivity and that's you, you know that that's basically you know like gdp but it abstracts away a num number of questions about you know how hard are, are people working longer hours or are are more people entering the workforce you know um or you know what is the you know, abstracting away from capital issues like what is the savings rate and so on and just looking at you know if you have a certain fixed basket of inputs um, you know, what is, you know, what, what kind of, how much output can you, can you derive from those basket of inputs? Right. And so, so that's, that's the number that ultimately I think, uh, we need to, we need to tweak if we want to have, uh, you know, really high GDP per capita. And, and, it, you know, unfortunately it's been sort of growing a lot more slowly, uh, since about the early 1970s and, and, you know, uh, especially since about 2005 or so. And uh, uh, one of the things we've, that's being talked about a lot within the national security uh, conversations in, in, in Washington, D.C. these days is that we're entering into a new stage of nation state competition where China is, is, is sort of our pure competitor, if you will. And if you look at what China is doing, they're, they're pursuing a path of sort of civ, civ, mule, civ mill fusion. Right, which is, is is they're not thinking about this as there's a competition with the United States in the military, and there's competition uh, 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 with the U.S. about who's got the world's strongest economy. They they look at the combination of the two and the fusion of the two as a way to project power, or project strength across the world here. And so that's why I think what you're working on is, is so interesting. Is is you know if we want to maintain our preeminent uh, uh, position as, as, as sort of the most powerful uh, nation around the world, which I think is good because we are pursuing a, 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 a policy or a, form, a, a goal of uh, democratic uh, uh, values and norms versus uh, China pursuing a, a path of uh, autocratic uh, 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 policy and norms. Uh, you know, the strength of the U.S. economy is inexorably interwoven into the strength of our uh, uh, military and national security position. Uh, uh, would you agree with that? And, 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 and from that, do you see China doing anything from sort of uh, economic policy uh, 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 development uh, 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 to pursue that, that, you know, the U.S. should be paying attention to? So I, yeah, I totally agree with that. And, uh, you know, China is paying a lot of attention to what they consider critical industries, like, like things like semiconductors and, uh, you know, um, aviation and aerospace, uh, stuff, uh, space. Um, and so, and they, they see these as like critical 
to um, to being able to be uh, autonomous and, and not dependent on on the U.S. or the West, and to be you know to get ready for and, if if there were to be a conflict that they you know they would be in you know well positioned to win it right and and um, and and you know they're they're focusing you know I, we could talk about defense platforms as well right they're they're much more f- focused on uh, you know being able to deny access to say the, the South China sea. And we're building like these large, uh, military platforms that are more suited for the wars of the past. Um, and so, and so, you know, I, I think that they see, they see it all as, as bound together and are very serious about becoming, uh, you know, if, if not the dominant, uh, you know, a, a very strong, uh, globally secure, uh, superpower. Agree completely. So let's dive into some of the areas of technology that you identified. It was interesting that you brought up uh, biotechnology first. I think uh, 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 there's a senior official in China that, that was quoted as saying, you know, Europe won the industrial revolution. The United States won the information uh, technology revolution. We, China, want to win the uh, uh, biology revolution. That we think is going to be the key, you know, revolution of, of, of the 21st uh, century. So, uh, um from from your perspective, uh, uh, dig in a little deeper about what are the key uh, uh, technology evolutions in the biotechnology area that we as a, a country should be focused on both for uh, the way it will strengthen our, our economy, but also uh, 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 the way that economic strength will, will help us from a, a national security perspective. Well, I'm really struck by uh, the fact that uh, so many of the recent uh, breakthroughs have to do with proteins. Um so, uh, so mRNA vaccines, right? What they do is essentially they they sort of use our uh, our cellular infrastructure to produce arbitrary proteins, whatever protein uh, is encoded in the in the vaccine, and um, and so so in the case of the 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 coronavirus vaccines, it's a it's a coronavirus spike protein that's produced. Um, so, so that you know that that's that's one protein related breakthrough, and then. Another one was the protein folding breakthrough that was announced at the end of last year. The the DeepMind uh, lab, uh, you know, that's that's a subsidiary of of Google or of Alphabet. Um, they you know they basically cracked you know to a really high degree of of accuracy the problem of of how to predict the shape the three D shape of a protein um, based on on its linear definition, right? And if you put you know, kind of combine that with, with things like CRISPR, which is, you know, editing genes, which, you know, genes produce proteins again, right? So um, you, you, we're kind of in a golden era of, um, of you know, protein-related breakthroughs, right? You know, like to the point where you could imagine in the future we can sort of design arbitrary proteins. Um, and that ability to do, engage in protein design, I think, could could unlock basically almost total control over all of biology because most of what biology is, 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 you know, proteins like that, like the other stuff is just there as fuel or as structure or, or, or something like that. But the proteins actually, actually does the, does the, uh, the, the actual stuff of living. So, so really understanding that is, is a breakthrough. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of how we apply it, I think that the most sure. exciting, go ahead. Keep go. Well, I think in terms of how we apply it, the most interesting space is in the longevity space, right? So, so rather than treating um, a whole bunch of diseases individually, 
we could potentially treat the process of aging, which is, you know, which is, which is um, something that, that gives rise to a, a whole lot of diseases, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, uh, dementia, you know, all of those different things come, you know, they correlate with, with sort of biological aging. Well, if you could attack biological aging directly, you would, you know, you would extend lifespan, you would compress morbidity, you would reduce the, uh, you know, sort of the total amount of resources we have to spend on just keeping ourselves healthy. Um, and, and you could, you know, that, that would be revolutionary from an economic perspective. If we attack uh, aging and, and prolong uh, uh, life expectancy, aren't we just shifting the costs out farther uh, uh, in the time frame, but don't the same aren't there the same costs associated with end of life that, that exists today? Or how do, how do we attack, the, uh, 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 how does that change that, that phenomenon? Well, it's, it seems to be the case that as you, uh, as you shift uh, aging you know, to the right, as you move it later in life, you're actually, you're, you're extending lifespan to some extent, but you're also, to an even greater extent, you're compressing the morbidity. So you're putting all of the disease, you know, right at the end. Um, and, and so, uh, instead of having, you know, decades of, of chronic illness and, and treatments and, and so on that you have to go through, it's like, you know, you're pretty healthy until you're, you're 95 and then you kind of go downhill for a year and then you die. Uh, and so, so spending, uh, a lot less time in that sort of, you know, really, uh, really sick state or, you know, sort of chronically ill, uh, state that, it, that could be a lot cheaper than, you know, uh, you know, a few decades of, of managed care. Okay. Then, um, as a regulatory actor, one, a hacker, uh, uh, I'd be curious on, on your perspective here. One of the things that I read is that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines were developed very quickly and that the whole, you know, the vast majority of the span of time from, uh, uh, uh their development to the actually being delivered into, uh, 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 use was the whole regulatory process that they had to go through to get approved. Do you have thoughts on, on sort of what, uh, things can be done to sort of, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, attack the, the sort of regulatory process that, uh, to, to shorten the timelines between invention or discovery and, and, and deployment of these great, uh, biological breakthroughs. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it's hard to talk about medicines without, you know, reflecting on the fact that, um, that, you know, drugs have to be approved in advance, like fully, you know, usually in under normal circumstances, they're, they're fully tested and, and fully proven safe and effective, uh, from the get-go. And so that's a huge barrier. And, um, you know, there's, you know, we've heard about Moore's law in the semiconductor space, but there, you know, a lot of people are talking about E-Room's law in the, in the, in the biotech space, which is that the, that cost of bringing a new drug to market seems to grow exponentially over time. Right. So it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's working against us, not, not in our favor. And so a different way, uh, you know, you could think about a whole number of different ways of, of, you know, regulating safety, in the biomedical space, you know, um, you could prove, you know, you could pro prove uh, safety and then, you know, the drug could be approved conditionally and then, um, and then continue the efficacy can continue to be monitored, you know, sort of on the market. And that would be a way to, to bring a lot of drugs to market a lot quicker. Um, but there's, there's a whole lot that we could do, um, to, to, to accelerate and to reduce the barriers to, to sort of getting to market and to increase investment in the space. Great. Let's move to your next, uh, your second, uh, technology area that you brought up, which is, uh, energy. Uh, you don't have to be a, 
uh, uh, avid reader of your Twitter feed too, uh, for very long to, before you realized how, uh, big a supporter you are geothermal energy. So, um, uh, and as our audience knows, uh, uh, wars have been fought over <laughs> energy, yes. right? Uh, 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 for a number of years. So th this is even more inextricably linked to, to national security. So tell me what is your perspective, uh, uh, on where the energy world is going over the next 10 or 15 years and, and why are you so, both optimistic and supportive of geothermal is the place that we should be uh, putting a lot of our effort. Yeah, sure. Great. Um, so in the last 10 years, we've had, you know, massive cost reductions in, in wind and solar, and that's been phenomenal. Um, but those are, you know, uh, in, as you know, uh, intermittent sources, they, you know, they require a lot of land area and so on. So they, they have, they're, they're not the, the sort of the holy grail of energy. You know, geothermal comes pretty close to, to being the holy grail of energy in, in terms of the amount of the resource that there is. There is, you know, there's more geothermal energy than, you know, all of the fossil fuels, all of the, uh, you know, the, the fissionable material on the planet, um, et cetera. Like you could, you know, add, add all that up and geothermal is still, you know, just the crustal energy uh, is something like 40, 40 times more than all the fossil fuels and fission energy combined. So it's, it's a massive resource. Um, it is baseload energy. So it, it you know, it, it's, it, you could, um, you know, use it to power everything 24 hours a day. Um, and, and we're not going to run out of it. And, and with, with technology improvements, it could be available anywhere on the planet. So you could, you know, if you, uh, you know, wanted to power, uh, you know, say Barrow, Alaska, right. That's, you know, dark six months of the year. Um, you know, you can't do that with, uh, with solar panels. So, uh, but you could do it with geothermal if, you know, if we, if we make the right technology breakthroughs. So it, you know, it's like the one problem, if we crack it, uh, we have, you know, very cheap, uh, clean, abundant, uh, energy, and, and all we have to do is learn how to drill deep enough, fast enough, cheap enough. The other good thing about it, uh, uh, implied in your answer is that it's available in the United States. So we don't have to, yep. uh, uh, import it from other countries. Uh, uh, we can control, we can control our own, uh, 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 we can supply our own energy needs, which is an important element to being a, a, a stable and, and safe country. So, so that's obviously, uh, uh, uh very desirable as well. My sense is that geothermal and nuclear are the two uh, uh, clean uh, uh, energy sources that have the scale to meet our energy needs and have, have the economics that are reasonably uh, 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 doable uh, 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 for our needs as well. But the challenge with uh, nuclear is there's a lot of regulatory issues associated uh, uh, with it. Uh, 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 does geothermal have some of the same regulatory uh, issues associated with that? And what, what's the state of, of the world there? You know, geothermal doesn't have like really the sort of the safety or the non-proliferation issues that, that nuclear has. Um, it does have like there are some like permitting obstacles, right? So getting especially um, the, you know, the best places that the, the lowest hanging fruit for geothermal is on federal lands uh, because uh, over, just federal lands happen to overlap, you know, out west with uh, a lot of the best areas for, for geothermal. And operating on federal lands uh, means you have to go through, you know, a bunch of permitting processes, you know, permitting to explore, then permitting to develop and so on. And, and each of those uh, federal decisions to, to grant a permit 
re- you know, requires an environmental uh, an analysis. And, and those, uh, those environmental reviews can take, can take years. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's not the same kind of regulatory obstacle that, that nuclear has, uh, where you have an entire agency that's, that's sort of devoted to, uh, to closely regulating it and limiting it. Um, but it is, so it's, it's, I think, I think it's not a showstopper that, you know, uh, the, the permitting obstacles, but it is slowing it down. And if we fixed it, we could go a lot faster. Another area that you oftentimes uh, uh, post about is uh, space and uh, aviation. And uh, as you know, our our country, uh, national security, relies a lot on uh, collection platforms in space or on airborne uh, uh, platforms. Uh, What trends do you see happening over the next 10 years uh, in in those sort of related industries? Well, the the story in space, I think, is is about Starship. You know, Starship. I think people still still hasn't dropped on people just how revolutionary SpaceX's uh, Starship uh, vehicle is going to be. You know, it's it's uh, basically going to be the biggest. Explain for the audience again what Starship is. Sure, Starship is is basically. Sorry uh, sorry to interrupt, but. Yeah, Starship is a you know 150 ton uh, payload to low Earth orbit uh, rocket, the biggest one ever developed. Uh, it's fully reusable, built out of you know cheap manufacturable materials, you know designed to be manufactured at scale. Uh, it's uh, you know uses uh, liquid methane fuels, which are cheap. It uses uh, it's refuelable on orbit. So it can uh, it could take your 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 150 ton payload that you launched to low Earth orbit can uh, can then be you know you can refuel it and go uh, a lot farther. You could go to take that same payload to the moon or or Mars uh, or beyond. Um, and so it's um, it's just being designed for a, a scale of space operations that is you know sort of beyond the the imagination of of most people. Um, you know, like a, a Falcon 9 rocket today in a, a reusable configuration will take payload to orbit for something like $2,500 a ton or $2,500 a kilogram, sorry, uh, to orbit. And, and you know, SpaceX is saying, or Elon Musk is saying that Starship, you know, at scale operating, operating, you know, sort of rapid with rapid reusability, you could get to something like $10 a kilogram. So like a 250x uh, cost reduction in, in the cost of payload to low earth orbit. I mean, that, that is transformative and, and it's going to enable us to completely change the way we do development in space. You, you know, uh, going, going to orbit is becomes like going to Europe. Um, it, it, it becomes really cheap. Um, and, and, and in terms of what kinds of space vehicles you can launch, uh, you know, you could, you, you don't have to design f- with, you know, expensive solid state materials, uh, and, and mechanisms. You can, you can use mechanical mechanisms that, that have a chance of breaking and that you could, you know, just, if it goes wrong, you, you just fly something else up and, and, and replace it. Cause it's not that expensive anymore. So I think, I think, you know, Starship is going to be absolutely transformative for the, for the space industry. And, um, and, 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 you know, so we, we need to plan for that, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a transformative capability, and and we need to take advantage of it to the to the maximum extent possible. Mm-hmm. Right, and then uh, uh, another area that you wrote about in your 
blog post was uh, custom chips. That, that was a trend that was going to happen over the next 10 years. Uh, microelectronics uh, is obviously very important to our national security. Uh, uh, all those microelectronics are manufactured and developed in, in, in Taiwan and other parts of uh, Asia right now. Uh, uh, so that's an uh, uh, area of concern for, for all of us. You know, tell me uh, why you're uh, focused on the custom chip side of this. Well, if you think about the history of computing, right, you had, you had, you know, in individual transistors, and then you had, you know, integrated circuits. And then so the, the thing that makes sense as the as the uh, continuation of that trend is just put everything on, you know, all aspects of a computer on on or many aspects of a computer on the same chip. Right. And we're seeing companies like Apple do that with uh, their their new M1 uh, you know, chips that, uh, that power, you know, some of their newer laptops and, and other computers. And they're just getting rave reviews because they're just so much faster than, than what was, you know, what was available before. Um, and you're seeing, you know, companies like Tesla for their, uh, their autopilot systems, their, you know, their most advanced autopilot self-driving computers, um, whether or not they're actually self-driving yet is a, is a different question, but the, the sort of the, the computational back end of that is, you know, being manufactured as, as, as a single chip. Um, and that is, um, you know, that, that yields, uh, uh, many efficiencies. And we're seeing also in machine learning, the design of specialized, you know, wafer sized, uh, machine learning chips that, um, that enable, you know, much, much better, uh, machine learning, machine learning model training. Um, and so, you know, you put that all together, I think it's, it's pretty clear, the way the industry is going to go is you're going to, you know, basically if you want to play in the, in, you know, any sort of computationally intensive space or any sort of space where you, you need a very high, uh, performance to energy use ratio, right. You're going to want your own, your own custom, uh, computer on a chip system on a chip that, um, that does what you need. And so, uh, so yeah, so I think, and, you know, in terms of being able to manufacture that the U S is, is behind, I think, as you said, this is all mostly manufactured in, in Asia and, you know, we need to probably redevelop that capability in the, in the United States. Absolutely. And, and the endless frontiers act, which, uh, Congress, uh, recently passed is I think going to be a big step forward to, uh, uh to our attempts there. Um, one last topic here on the technology side, uh, cryptocurrency. I think you're a Bitcoin uh, supporter and, and, and fan. Uh, tell me why you're, you're bullish on that. And then uh, uh, the next topic as relates to that is, you know, have you paid attention to what China's doing in that space? Because uh, uh, they're making some strategic moves in that area that we, I think we can talk about. But first, uh, just in general, why, why are you bullish on, on, on Bitcoin? Well, so I'm not bullish on Bitcoin. I'm, I, I do like uh, cryptocurrencies in general, but... Um... I think Bitcoin is is too Bitcoin is itself right is is too static, too uh, you know too, it's not doesn't have very many features and so I've been I've been following uh, Ethereum a lot more and and there's a bunch of other um, you know sort of uh, yeah. projects out there that are trying to be Ethereum killers and and you know maybe they're interesting as well um, but uh, you know I think like 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 Bitcoin is like a, a landline telephone and like, I'd, I'd rather have that if I, you know, if I didn't have anything, I'd rather have that than nothing. But, uh, but then, you know, if you compare that to like a late model iPhone, right? Like you'd, you'd much rather have the, the more features that are available in, in other cryptocurrencies more and more. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, I'm envisioning the financial system of the future as being, you know, uh, you know, sort of banks or, or FinTech companies on the front end, 
but then using the sort of the a system like Ethereum or or one of its uh, you know successors um, as as rails on the back end, right? So you can have a financial system that is um, that's that's open, that is efficient, that you know settles things, settles uh, trades quickly, that um, that is able to do atomic swaps of of various assets, that um, that you know allows for a lot of innovation. And and you can have it be a completely open decentralized system um, that is open to the entire free world, right? And so, to me, that's that's a really compelling uh, vision um, that, uh, that that we could have. And and I think uh, you know I think the, sort of the the fundamental enabler of that is smart contract technology, which is being developed on on blockchains um, like like Ethereum and others. And so I think the, the, you know, the question is, you know, we're still a long way from that. And the question is, you know, how do we, how do we improve the usability of these, of these systems, the scalability of these systems? Like that's, that's the really, that's the hard part right now. And, um, and when we get there, you, you know, you can, you could, you could have really a a big improvement over today's uh, financial system. So, uh, cryptocurrencies in general, and certainly anything built on block uh, chain, are decentralized uh, uh, open systems, uh, uh, to use some of the, the phrases that you used in, in your previous answer. Um, those are not uh, uh, adjectives that are uh, uh, looked on very favorably by authoritarian states such as China. And so the recent news uh, is that China has kicked out a lot of Bitcoin miners. Uh, uh, they're trying to, in essence, uh, 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 get Bitcoin out, out of their country. And they're instead backing a centralized uh, digital currency that that would be state controlled uh, 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 by them for obvi- and that would obviously you know uh, 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 feed into their whole surveillance state uh, 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 infrastructure that they're uh, uh, building over there. Um, what's your take on what China's doing? Uh, uh, and you know, can a nation state really exert any true control and influence on on on, on any of these cryptocurrencies? Or will the the openness and the decentralization of, of uh, 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 Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other blockchain-based uh, currency ultimately win out over a centralized state-based uh, uh, digital currency? Great question. So, um, so China is, you know, as as always, it's a little bit of an enigma to understand what's really going on there. But I think they're interesting because, you know, at the level of of Xi Jinping, right? They've they've been talking about uh about smart contracts and about you know about the you know being learning you know china it's a priority for them to understand this this technology and uh and move it forward um and they've they've been experimenting with a a digital yuan that um that can only be spent for certain goods right so so something like a food stamps uh but that's that's you know sort of this uh digital currency that they're 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 playing with um and i think you're absolutely right they want to use it for surveillance for control uh, et cetera. Um, the, the, the kicking out of the, the miners, uh, Bitcoin, you know, that I don't know that that exactly what signal that sends, like that doesn't, I think that they could just be thinking that they don't, it, on, on one hand, it seems like the one possible interpretation of that is that they don't think mining specifically is a valuable industry for them to be, uh, involved in, uh, in, in terms of, uh, the amount of resources that it uses, you know, their, off, off their electrical grid and so on. Um, so that that could be um, 
that could be one interpretation of it. And the, uh, the other interpretation is that they don't want to have anything to do with, with these, with any open blockchain. I don't think that that is correct. I think that they, I think they want to keep tabs on the open blockchains as well. Um, so, so, you know, we'll see if they actually shut down the other aspects of cryptocurrency. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, network effects in, in payment rails are pretty strong in terms of, you know, uh, there's, there's, there are hundreds of currencies around the world, but there's how many credit card networks, like many fewer. Right. And so, so payment rails have very strong network effects. And I think, uh, people are going to want to be on the, on, on sort of the, the big ones, right. There are, people are going to want to be on, on, on Bitcoin, on Ethereum and on maybe a handful of others. So, um, so I, I, I think, you know, the idea of, you know, China, creating their own blockchain system, I think is, I think they're going to, they're going to struggle to do that. And they, they have the advantage of being able to just coerce people to, to do that. But, uh, but, you know, sort of in a, in a natural state uh, where people have a choice of what to adopt, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be very challenging. Great. Well, I think we hit on a lot of the um, uh, technology topics that uh, I picked out from your uh, writings and, and postings that uh, I think are pertinent. Uh, uh, to our audience here at the intersection of national security and technology. Anything you think I've missed on or any other uh, uh, points you think we should hit on before we wrap up here? Uh, no, that's, it's, uh, yeah, no, it's been, it's been great to chat. Right. Well, listen, uh, Eli, thank you so much for joining us at the intersection. Uh, it's been a, another fantastic uh, uh, conversation here. Uh, I think you mentioned your uh, uh, URL earlier, uh, uh, your personal URL earlier in, uh, 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 the broadcast here, but do you want to also uh, let people know what uh, your Twitter account is? If, if people want to uh, get inspired by our conversation, want to go follow you on Twitter? Sure. Yeah. So you can uh, follow me on, on Twitter at, at Eli Dorado and on the, on the web at Eli Dorado.com and uh, some other stuff at uh, the CGO.org for the center for growth and opportunity. Great. Well, thank you so much, Eli. We really appreciate you once again, joining us at the intersection and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with our uh, next uh, fantastic guest. Thank you very much, everybody. Mm -hmm.